I'm excited you're here, dude. I'm yeah. really excited. Thank you're you here. for inviting me. Of course, dude. I love yeah. being around people like you. Cause one thing about you is, or I guess with most authors is you're always learning, you know, and that's such a good thing when you're, I feel like learning is such a, there's a direct relationship with learning and growing. It's like growing mentally, growing spiritually, growing physically. Um, so I love being around people like you, man. And mm. I'm, I'm super thankful you're here. I'm excited to talk with you, dude. So yeah. we a lot of failure to get to growth. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Which is that's all it, part man. Of it. Yeah. That's it. We ready to rock? We good to go? Okay. Cool, man. Well, this is just like a conversation, man. Yeah. We just kind of, I, I hate the word interview because I'm like, I try to do the interview thing for a little bit with our, with some of our first guests. And I'm like, let me just ditch the script and let's just have a mm -hmm. conversation. Um, so yeah, I just, I'm, I'm just ready to talk with you tonight, man. And, um, I, uh, I read your book and freaking shh, dude, mm. it drastically changed my life and I've already gotten so many of my friends on it. Mm. What was, I want to know a little bit about you though. What was the yeah. inspiration behind this? Yeah. And tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of stories come to mind. Uh, first story is I went to a Southern Baptist high school in Virginia. Mm. And, it, you know, it's not a place that I would recommend going through puberty. Uh, I would not wish it on many people. Mm -hmm. um, but it was that sense of like, if you are struggling with uh, anything sexually, there's just this sense that uh, you are going to be broken and this is going to be part of your life for a long time. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of the Christian circles that I was coming out of, there was this sense of... Uh, almost like going to culinary school and the only thing that they teach you about is salmonella, but then they expect this masterpiece from you. Um, that was my experience of Christian sex ed was like, oh don't gosh. do this. This is harmful. Uh, and just really egregious metaphors and examples, particularly for girls and for women. Um, so those were some of the origin stories of uh, what I would refer to as just like a lust management approach. And that was like, if you are struggling with porn, if you have some fantasy, uh, if you are just like curious about anything, uh, this is something that needs to be managed, meaning you needed to attack it with internet monitoring, accountability, mm. prayer. Uh, and it, especially as a therapist, but also in my own life, just recognizing that those things were not working. Mm. So that was kind of my my current uh or probably high school experience. But then uh, particularly in grad school, when I started you know, just diving into like, what is my story and what's the Stringer family story? Uh, one of the most formative uh, things that happened to me was my grandfather. So I'm named after both of my grandfathers. Mm -hmm. So Jay was my dad's father's name and he died two years before I was born. Mm -hmm. And then Elmer was my mom's dad's name. And I remember being at Elmer's funeral and just just having this recognition that like I knew so little of his life. We knew some of the headline stories, but I didn't really know him. Jay had died a couple years before I was born. And so there was the sense of like, if I'm going to get to know any of my family members, uh, I have to start with my mom's dad, Dorothy. And long story short, uh, I took her out to a cafe uh, and I presented her with three skeleton keys. And I said, Grandma, uh, these three keys symbolize three lunches that I want to take you out to, uh, to just learn about your life. And you know, on, on one hand, I knew that I was walking a little bit of that razor's edge that uh, my grandmother was just not a cold or warm person. Like a lot of people have very fond memories of their yeah. grandmother and I just, I envy them. Yeah. Uh, and so with my grandmother, uh, I knew that this invitation was going to be disruptive, but I just didn't know if she would take it or not. About 10 or 15 seconds pass. She doesn't say anything to the gift that I've just given. And then she eventually pushes the present back across the table to mm. me and says, Jay, uh, there are some doors you just don't open. There are some stories you just don't tell. And I was like, whoa, um, this is my family history. And so then I started thinking about my own life and, you know, thinking about different sexual struggles that I've had, thinking about different, you know, just being bullied, uh, made fun of a lot, uh, just a lot of my own trauma history. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the sense that I felt was stored inside my body is there are some stories 
you just should not tell. Mm. And I realized that the stories that I was not telling were actually ruining so much of my life. And so that experience with my grandmother of being like, this isn't just my struggle. This is multi-generational. This is kind of how trauma is passed down. And so I think just seeing the current paradigms in the church not working, and then a lot of just my own family history, that was kind of that sense of defiance of like something needs to be done yeah. about this particular uh, topic. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of the, you know, pre- predominantly Christian books on this do a lot of shame management or just kind of lust management. And then the progressive approach tends to be more shame management of, you know, we don't want people to feel shame about what they're doing. And so let's mitigate shame, which I'm all for. But then the progressive approach, in my experience, doesn't really help people develop. Like, okay, once we're not pathologizing, which is always good, how are we actually cultivating people to understand their sexual story and to understand that uh, the things that we desire can be shaped and affected by things that we have no understanding of. Mm. So there was a one research study that I was looking at recently, uh, basically they gave people these uh, word pairings and one of them was ocean moon. And then the researchers asked people, they said, tell me what your favorite detergent is in the amount of people that said tide detergent was like statistically significantly oh increased for that particular group that was exposed to the ocean moon pairing. And so the researchers, basically their assessment or their takeaway from that was that desires within us can be built up in ways that are beyond our ability to even know that they are in there. And so to me, there's there's so much truth in that. When we yeah. think about why do I desire anything? And particularly in the sexual realm, why am I drawn to particular things? Sure. And why do I fantasize about this? Or why does this porn theme appeal to me? Or why does this archetype or person uh, really seduce me or draw me in? So I think there is just so much uh, yeah. within our sexual lives that are worth being curious about. Sure. Oh my gosh, man. We could have just stopped there and been amazing. <laughs> that was amazing, man. I love, I love, you said something about like, the, like the trauma stuff and like mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> some things are with your grandmother, right? Some stories or some doors are just not meant to open. Some yes. stories aren't meant to be yeah. shared. And I think that the enemy has a really good way of making mm-hmm. us believe that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think of, you know, this topic surrounding sexual sin, especially it's so easy for guys and girls too. It's, it's one of those scenes where it's like hiding just feels so much better, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's, that is the totally opposite mm-hmm. of what you should be doing. And I know we're going to get into that in your yes. book because I want to dive into this yep. with you. But before we do that, Jay Stringer, when you're not doing the author stuff when you're not writing when you're not speaking intellectually like you are right now what what else are you doing what passion products you got going on i feel so boring um (laughs) you're interesting man so i mean i have loved i mean particularly when i so i I grew up in the east coast and then moved out to seattle washington Mm. for grad school and i will always refer to that as like the infancy of my adulthood Uh, i grew up as a pastor's kid um and we just didn't do a whole lot i think we did like a couple camping trips with my dad a couple baseball games but did not cultivate really any of my desire so Mm Uh, first week in Seattle, uh, I had a friend that surfed, invited me to go surfing with him (laughs) and changed my life. Uh, and then had another friend that had run marathons and I had never run, I think I'd played baseball in high school, college, but I'd never run over like five miles before. (laughs) And he signed me up for a marathon. Um, And so we had like, I don't know, it was like not enough time to fully train, but uh, trained quite well, did well. Yeah. And then about <clears throat> a couple of weeks after that, I had another friend that uh, was a mountaineer, had done a lot of work on Mount Rainier and Denali, invited some of us to go and climb Mount Rainier and summit it. And so wow. I think within those like three Thank experiences you. was like, <clears throat> wow, I have never felt like my body loving just movement and yeah. nature and beauty. So I, 
I t- want to find beauty and the sure. outdoors so much more than I do. Um, but I have a almost 11 year old son too. And so that wow. question of like, what are we doing? And I got some fly rods for us for Christmas, but still don't know how to use them. <laughs> and that's the, that's the bind that I feel inside uh-huh. of me is there's so much in terms of like, whether it's hunting, fly fishing that I want to be doing, uh-huh. uh, but I have not had guides thus far. But, so I'm, I'm trying to change some of that. So anything outdoors, nature, trails, yeah. get off the grid. I I love immensely. Yeah, I'm so. the same way. I just got a, a roommate here in Nashville. Okay. Um, I was living alone for a couple months, probably yeah. four months. And this dude walks in like, this was in January. This is like four weeks ago, okay? Okay. This dude walks in with fishing poles and a toolbox. <laughs> I'm like, this guy is outdoor junkie. And I'm like, this is exactly what I need. Because most of my time you know doing the music thing is just spent at home on my computer or on my studio Mm -hmm. doing stuff i'm like this is exactly what i need i need somebody to go out there guide me and take me fishing it's just so good man we do yes it's so good so good being outside yeah Yeah. so good indeed so what position did you play in baseball uh i was a pitcher primarily so at the southern baptist high school uh I mean, I, I think it was uh, freshman year, no, sophomore year, we were really good in the state of Virginia. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think I was the I was the only starter as a sophomore. Uh-huh. And then we had eight seniors and all the seniors left. And I think, I don't know, I think my junior year of high school, we didn't have any seniors on the team. Like it was oh that gosh. small of a school. And so I had to start pitching. I'd never pitched before my junior year. And that was when I started. So, oh but gosh. then quickly... Yeah, enjoyed it. That's cool, and stuck man. with that. I played. Uh, so. I played third base a lot in high school, and then okay. ended up moving to second base for a little bit in college. Yeah, <clears throat> but man, the thing with pitchers is, I mean, were you just always taking care of your arm? <laughs> it, it's amazing. I mean, I wasn't that great, oh, so okay. I didn't get to, to that. I mean, my in at my high school, they always say like the best ability was availability. <laughs> like everybody <laughs> made the team. Um, so I was, I mean, I was good in baseball, played at a D3 school. But like, okay. again, when I was, I only played That's, one year yeah. um, at that D3 school. And like, I played non-conference games primarily. So I, I had a lot of time to watch other people's yeah. arms get hurt. <laughs> Dude, so. it's amazing, man. Just the icing and the ibuprofen. Yes. It's like, yeah. When I was Constant. younger, I was always the, I never pitched super fast. Okay. I could throw some heat on it, but I was always the curveball guy. Okay. And yeah. so growing up, my coach was always calling curveballs me. It got to a point where I got to high school. I'm like, I can barely feel my arm. Yes. Like, is this what, yeah. is this what it's supposed to feel like? Yes. And the ice and the ibuprofen, I ended up having to go to therapy for it a little bit too. Really? It's amazing, man. Hmm. It's hmm. amazing. Yeah. Man, dude, I love you already, man. So interesting. Yeah. I love it. So, so and then coffee too. I've, coffee. Sorry, I've loved coffee okay. as of late. Are you so. a black coffee guy or? I'm kind of both. I'm, I'm all over the place dude. with find the right. Yeah. Roaster. Um, got a really good machine for my 40th birthday nice. from, yeah. So that's been more of a craft. I'm kind of under two persuasions with coffee. Like really? that's so it's either the drug where yeah. I can just, you know, use it at a diner and can be happy with yeah, folders, the or it's it. like, I want something that's yeah. like really refined. I've got to so. have the creamer, man. I've <laughs> yeah. got to have it. Yeah. I just, something about black coffee. It's just, I can't do it. Yeah. I can't yeah. do it. I yes. gotta have the creamer. Cool, man. Well, how this show kind of works, man, is I kind of knew your story kind of going into it. Obviously, mm-hmm. I've, I've read yeah. your book. <clears throat> One thing that we love to do for listeners and like just people that watch the show is we want to try our best to stay biblically in mm-hmm. this conversation. Yep. And what I'll do usually is I'll uh, do my research on you beforehand. And what I what I like to do is I like to read the Bible beforehand and kind of find a verse yeah. or a chapter that really stands out to your story and also just, um, you know, your book and what you mm-hmm. kind of teach about. So I was reading this week and I found a really cool one, actually. I'm going to mm. share it with you. Mm. Um, so this one is in the book of Matthew. If you're listening at home, we're in the book of Matthew. And it's Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And it says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hmm. Dude, I mean, we're going to get into it a little bit more later, but <clears throat> one of the things that I love about that is hmm. it's an invitation. It's an invitation from the Lord. Um, and I think about this topic that we're getting into, not just about sexual sin, but also just addiction in general. And that verse speaks so much to just the freedom there is in Jesus, man. And it's like, there's so many people out there and even in my own story that just like have fought with this for so long. Mm -hmm. And by the end of this conversation, I hope that they can know that there, there's an invitation for freedom for that. Mm -hmm. But we're going to yeah. get to that. So yes. one yeah. of the questions that I had for you first, um, and in your book, you kind of outlined this, but I guess the the main question that I wanted to ask you, and I think mm. that this is a question that I get a lot from my friends too, that may not be necessarily Christians, but yeah. they're always curious mm -hmm. practically what this looks like. Why is sexual sin bad theologically mm -hmm. and also just practically like what mm -hmm. are the harmful things that it does to us practically and what does the lord or what does the bible say about sexual sin in general yeah yeah it's a big question yeah there are volumes and volumes of <laughs> yeah. church history that have been let's do attempting it, to address that so i mean let me back up so yeah. um so when we're thinking about sex and desire uh probably the person who has shaped our understanding of sex in Western culture more than anyone is a theologian by the name of Augustine. Mm -hmm. And Augustine was a fourth century theologian, philosopher, and uh, brilliant. Uh, wrote a book called Confessions, City of God. Like he has been incredibly influential. Uh, but what we know about his backstory is that he was likely struggled with compulsive sexual behavior and a lot of what I would refer to as unwanted sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. So affairs, he was into orgies before yep. his conversion. <laughs> Um, and probably had some sexual abuse from what I've been able to read. But when it came to his passions, uh, he would write in the confessions, like the frenzy gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. And so for Augustine, it was better to have sex outside of marriage for the purpose of like conceiving a child than yeah. it would be for like a, a couple to enjoy sexual intimacy together just for having good enjoyable sex so uh he kind of you know in his own sexual shame in a lot of the judgments he passed on created a sexual theology that i think is part of what we're dealing with when we're looking at the harms of purity culture or just a lot of when people have this negative understanding of christian sexuality uh, they have a point to be yeah. able to critique it so i think we have to look at not just what does the bible say but also how has the bible been interpreted and how sure. have we understood these things sure. so um another theologian talks about how sex is uh and i write about this some in my book but it's from the the word sakare which means essentially to sever or to amputate from the whole so if you look at a tree and then you take off a branch of it you've just sexed the tree oh wow in the old english so according to this theologian sex is this awareness that i have been uh, cut off from something and it's my way about you know reconnecting and yeah. so for him there's a difference between sexuality and genitality so genitality is obviously what we're doing with our genitals but sexuality like there's never a moment that we are not sexual beings mm -hmm. and so that sense of like all of us feel some level of separation from our friends, from our family, uh, even from God. Yeah. And so that sense of our sexuality is how we're trying to go and you know, reestablish connections with people. And there is a holy longing for us to connect. And so part of the biblical vision of sexuality is also, you know, whether it's within the context of marriage, there's this sense that when you give your body, your nakedness, your, you know, pleasure, you're not just giving over your body, but what you're doing with your body is a pledge of what you've decided to do with your entire life. So it's wow. not just what I've done, you know, with, uh, my nakedness, but there's a certain, uh, I just got burned. <laughs> you okay? <man? laughs> yeah, I'm good. I saw that just fly in his eyes. It's the fire of sexuality. <laughs> um, um, there's a lot of Christian thought around, yeah, I'll get back to that on another time <laughs> with regard to the fireplace and sex. Um, 
but I, I don't even know where I was before I got burned. The theology of it. Yeah, that there's there's this sense that what I'm doing with my body yeah. is what I'm also committing to do with my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so that is legally, psychologically, spiritually, there's a sense of kind of nakedness that my wife and I have, that there's this sense yeah. of the vulnerability that it requires yeah. to not just share my body with someone, but sure. to share my innermost thoughts, to be able to share my past sexual harm, to be able to share my sexual brokenness and difficulties, um, a lot of just the vulnerability and bigger desires that I have outside of sex. Like it's really difficult work to have really beautiful relationships. Yeah. And so that sense of, in a biblical understanding, the place where people are most developed, the place that people are most formed, the place that it it's within something of that crucible of marriage. And so I think yeah. there is something really compelling about that vision, but it's also, you know, it, it's written in a day and time where you would also get married far earlier. And so there sure. are different cultural questions that we need to be raising, sure. uh, especially in a world with pornography um and so there just that sense of like uh it, the bedroom is a very noisy room so we don't just begin being sexual the moment that we have you know intercourse or oral sex like we are sexual in the womb and so that sense mm -hmm. of how are we as christians inviting people to understand their sexual story is i think the much greater question yeah yeah sure I'm, i remember in your book in the beginning of it you mention the creation story with adam and eve and you refer to genesis and i think you actually like i think i remember you saying and this is so true the lord like our sexuality is such a beautiful thing mm -hmm. the lord created us to be sexual yes and the enemy uses that because he knows how powerful it is and how much mm -hmm. it affects other areas of our life i mean i look at my own life sometimes mm -hmm. too it's like I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, like it, like lust is something that I have definitely struggled with in the past. And, uh, through the grace of God, I, I'm, uh, you know, that is, I've been healed from that. And, um, but I, I, I remember it not just affecting my dating life or, you know, um, my relationships with people, it affected so much more mm. the way mm -hmm. I communicate with people, the way I see people, um, and it, it, the enemy uses that so much, man. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit more yeah. about the Genesis side of things and like that creation yeah. story. Why is sexuality so God designed? Like mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, uh, there's so many different, I mean, I think that that sense of like the one thing that was not good prior to the entrance of sin mm -hmm. was that Adam was alone. And so that sense of Eve is brought in as this helpmate, yeah. which has been, uh, in many ways bastardized in terms of yeah. hermeneutics, but it's the sense of like, I, I don't quote me fully on this, but I think that word helpmate is only used four or five times in the Old Testament. And it's always in reference to Yahweh rescuing the people of Israel from destruction. Yeah. So it's, it's not the sense of subservience. It's a sense of like, given some of the difficulties and uh, propensities within what it means to be a man, there is a sense that someone will be there, not quite to rescue us or to be our helpmate, but a yeah. sense of like someone needs to join us to be able to confront certain things within us that yeah. deeply need to change. Sure. So I think that's a, you know, a understanding of partnership there. But what you were saying with regard to evil is theologically, uh, people would say that evil cannot create ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. So C.S. Lewis would say like, you know, the only way that milk can go bad and to sour is if it, you know, the milk turns, right? And so that's what we're seeing in, in the work of evil is that <clears throat> evil can't create, like evil cannot um, create a tree, but what it wow. can do is to burn entire forests down. Um, wow. So the sense of sexuality, it can't create sex, uh, but what it can do is to twist and contort that which God has made good and beautiful and true. Yeah. And so if we're looking at the work of evil, we should always look at how do, how is fidelity, how is arousal, how is desire, how are all these good and beautiful and true things being twisted and contorted? Yeah. So we don't want to ne necessarily just 
you know, condemn it and say that's bad. Sure. Uh, according to some authors, there are no kind of, uh, you know, secular spaces. Sure. There are only sacred and desecrated spaces. Wow. And so when we're looking at the world, I think as Christians, we need to be looking at where has something of the sacredness of sexuality and intimacy been uh, desecrated. Sure. And that's part of, you know, what my book was written into sure. is how do we deal with a world that has been desecrated yeah. through the work of evil powers, principalities, and also just generational patterns and yeah. culture. So it, yeah. really big topics. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and I remember you saying in your book, um, one of the, uh, sometimes when, when we deal with this stuff, even with addiction too, in general, the typical prayer is, okay, God, just take this away from me. And it's like, yes. a lot of people think, and I thought this for the long time with my mm. my own self, it's like, you can't just turn it off one day. And it's just not how it works. But one thing that you said that I loved was, instead of praying God, you know, uh, flip this switch <laughs> yeah. in a sense, help me to understand yes. more of my son. Help me to become curious as to why yes. I do what I do. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about yeah. that. Love it. Yeah, I think the, this is, I, I wrote a lot of my book almost like a decade ago, I really? think. Oh, um, and so, but that is one thing that I remember writing yeah. a few sentences where I think I said something along the lines of like one night of deliberate curiosity for your sexual struggles or fantasies will yeah. take you so much further than a thousand nights of prayerful despair. Yeah. Um, and so that's based in, I think of like Romans 12, two as yep. well, where yeah. we're, you know, it basically says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, yeah. but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Sure. Um, I think as Christians, we intuitively know the themes and the spaces that we don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we don't know how to renew our sexual mind. And one of the reasons is we've never been asked to study what's inside of it. And so uh, that's a big approach in my work is how can we develop curiosity for what is within our sexual mind? And that was part of the research that I did for my book as well as we, we asked about family of origin. We asked about adverse childhood experiences like bullying, and uh, abuse. We asked about some of the difficulties that people are facing today, like anxiety, depression, yeah. uh, a lack of intimacy, loneliness, lack of purpose. Yeah. Uh, and then we also asked people uh, to share some of the sexual fantasies that they were more likely to pursue. And then we basically put all that together and uh, ran some analytics on it. And it was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, essentially what we found is that we could predict people's porn preferences and searches yeah. based on the unaddressed and therefore unresolved stories of their life. Yeah. And so uh, to me, if, if God really knows everything that is in my heart and everything that I have ever thought, that includes my sexual life. And sure. so that sense of <clears throat> God, knows me deeply, loves, cares for me deeply, and is committed to my uh, restoration. Sure. I think that has to include our sexual life. And so um, that was a huge finding within the research was uh, there is meaning within our sexual fantasies. And you're right, that totally goes uh, against some of these notions of like, we should just turn and flee from sexual immorality True. and we should just run away from these things and not think about them. Um, and I think there's a time and a place to be able to understand what it means to flee, but running from our mind and running from our spiritual yeah. formation is not what those verses work. are about. And so I, I think most of us think about our discipleship in terms of like our sanctification, understanding what was accomplished through our justification, but we don't really think about our sexual life as one of the primary places of discipleship. And if you don't like discipleship, just use the language of spiritual formation yeah. that a lot of times we think that our sexuality and our sexual brokenness is this barrier to our spiritual formation. But in reality, it is a tremendous bridge mm -hmm. um, to understand the heart of God for us, to understand our own story. Yeah. So uh, I think there's so much to be gained through a, a deeply curious and kind look at yeah. our sexual 
story. Sure. And I love that you mentioned Romans 12 too, because that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite verses. But the coolest thing about that and what you just said is, you know, you can't, you can't just run away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that the Bible used that word, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Mm-hmm. Like literally don't run from it, but, tr- <laughs> yeah. but literally transform your mind. And I remember uh, one, I think you mentioned this in the book too. Uh, Tim Keller has this really cool, um, I, I don't even know what it, to call it. I actually think he got it from Calvin, but he uh, says this thing called the idol factory. Yeah. And basically, Calvin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically it's, I mean, you can explain it better than me. I'll, I'll give you the floor to explain that. Oh, just like <laughs> the, the heart is an idol factory is yeah. I think Calvin's famous line. Yeah. The fact that like everything that the, the heart, what it does is it, it takes successful job and mm-hmm. it takes good marriage and it makes it these ultimate things. Yes. And it deceives it us in a way that it makes us feel emotionally that mm-hmm. that's what we need to satisfy yes. and be fulfilled. Yes. Um, but Romans 12 two, totally flips that over. Because it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And mm-hmm. the Bible even talks about that the heart is a deceitful thing at times. Mm-hmm. Because the heart is filled with, is, the heart is fueled by emotion, but the mind is fueled, fueled by knowledge of the word of God. Um, and one of the ways that we literally transform our mind is by reading the word. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that you mentioned that, mm-hmm. man. I, mm-hmm. I have a more specific question to ask you. And this, this, I'm, I'm going to try to phrase this in the best way possible because growing up, I was always curious in this and yeah. I had a lot of friends, you know, there's a lot of people out there that um, may struggle with viewing something that they may not should be viewing yeah. um, and slash or um, acting on that in mm-hmm. a way. I think uh, for a lot of people, some think that like one may be more acceptable than the other. Mm-hmm. Tell me, is both bad? Is one better than the other? Tell me theologically, what does what does the Bible say about the connection between pornography and actually acting on mm-hmm. the action of self-pleasure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's... So if we're if we're looking at you know book of Matthew yeah. a couple chapters earlier Matthew 5 Jesus is is essentially saying I mean, he's he's talking about what's the nature of sin right uh, but part of what he says is that sin is um you know it, this issue of uh anger and this issue of lust so what is anger well it's mm-hmm. like uh you know, when we are angry with someone, we, we're not just angry with them. Uh, we want to harm them. And Jesus says that we are murderers. The book of, you know, James takes that even further and says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, you want something, but you don't get it. And so you kill. Um, wow. And then Jesus says, you know, essentially when you lust, you are an adulterer. So Jesus is confronting people with this notion of like, yeah. you are a murderer and you are an sure. adulterer. Um, and lust is is this sense of kind of covetousness. It's not just about what we're doing with our sexual mind. So that sense of like, I have lusted to get married. I have lusted to get out of my marriage. I have lusted to have kids. I have lusted to like <laughs> be free of my kids from time to time. Mm-hmm. So it's this sense of like, you know, I can covet almost anybody I meet. I can covet something about their life. So it's the sense of like that is just deeply woven into who I am and part of this, you know, spiritual formation process of being aware of my lust, being aware of my anger. So when we're looking at the issue of pornography specifically or any type of lust, it's the sense of, um, you know, especially in the Christian circles, we have looked at. I'm going to, I know I'm bouncing around, no, but go for it, man. hopefully this will it. all make sense. So, uh, I think about like the Mississippi river. So uh-huh. the Mississippi river is so powerful because it's not just one river. There are many, many tributaries that flow into that. So, mm-hmm. uh, the Missouri, the red, the Arkansas, I believe Tennessee river flows into that as well. So when we're looking at this river, it's it's so powerful because it's many different tributaries and so when we're looking at any realm of sexual sin or 
sexual dysfunction or problems, we can never just say it's an issue of lust. Um, I think that is, you know, <laughs> it's not, we're not go if, because what happens then is if lust is the primary tributary that I'm yeah. struggling with, let's get an internet monitoring. Let's try and flee it. Right. Let's try and combat it. Right. And so you try and build this dam yep. against <laughs> sexual arousal. And then you're like, whoa, it didn't really work yeah. because now I have all this anger addressed. Mm. So no one ever invited me to understand that anger is very central to my sex life. Um, so that sense of like, when I have been very angry with my wife, um, when I have been very angry with, you know, ex-girlfriends, that sense of like, those have been some of the moments where porn has been the most appealing and when I have indulged in it the most. Yeah. And so it's the sense that like, if I'm angry that, my desires are not being fulfilled um, if I am being missed or if I'm just irritated, um, that can really begin to form, you know, why I am drawn to a particular thing. So yeah. uh, that sense of all sexual sin is really that intersection of kind of lust and anger among other, I think childhood trauma informs sure. into that past sexual abuse, sure. the way that we've been groomed by the porn industry, all of that flows into that. So yeah. to me, it's not like what is worse or what is better. Uh, I think there are different consequences to it, but I think the heart behind them are very similar in terms of, <clears throat> I don't know how to work within my own emptiness. Yeah. I don't know how to work within my own loneliness. And so I'm going to something else as something of a shortcut. Yeah to be able to make my life work. Yeah. And that's part of the nature of idolatry is that in Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah is talking about what's the notion of idolatry. And he says, it's a, you take a piece of wood and you cut it in half. And with half of it, you're, you have a bonfire and you're cooking your food and uh, it's giving light to your entire camp. But then the other half of the wood, you carve into this ornate structure that you begin to worship and entrust a lot of power to. Mm. And so for Isaiah, the notion of idolatry is you take something that is really good and then you make it in Keller's words, an ultimate thing. Yeah. And so I think that's what we have to work through is most of our unwanted sexual behaviors uh, have a level of dignity to it. The desire to be less alone, the desire to yeah. be uh, more connected with eyes or passion or to feel yeah. some level of life against sure. the banality of the life that we are now living. Sure. But then anything that we begin to lean on for rescue outside of the God of the universe begins to compromise something very, very essential sure. to our humanity. And that's what we're grappling with is on one hand, it, it's helped us to survive. On the other hand, it is now impeding and creating a lot of difficulties for us personally, but then also requires the harm of someone else in order for yeah. me to have a level of sexual gain. And I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, ethics according to believe it's Levinas would say that ethics always begins in the face of the other. And so with regard to porn, with regard to infidelity, with regard to any of these things that I would say Christian sexual ethics is saying, is this good for the, for the other person's face? And so if I am pursuing a sexual behavior that is putting someone in harm's way in the world of pornography and sexual exploitation, if I am pursuing extramarital affairs or uh, just a hookup to use someone, I have not considered the face of the other in that engagement. So it's not just my own emptiness and brokenness that I'm dealing with. I have actually amplified the level of separation wow. and division within that other person. So I think that's where, you know, back to your previous question around, you know, why Christian sex ethic is, I, I think, really powerful is talks about consent. It yeah. talks about all the big hot button topics of our day, sure. but then expounds on them to say like, no, what, what is good in the face of the other with regard to the decisions that I'm yeah. making? Yeah. Oh, man, that's so powerful, man. I, I, I remember reading, actually, I'm going to read it right now. Yeah. What you, you introduced this idea that eh, it all starts with anger and lust, which is so true. And, um, it transform into this idea of um, um, harming, right? It, mm -hmm. it, there's a sense of harming um, other people and, and, and that's kind of the idea of what we get into. 
you said this in your book and i'm just gonna read it word for word and you guys can hear this too man this is like this had dude this had me in tears man when mm. i read this i'm not even gonna lie um but jay jay stringer in his book unwanted um he writes these words in pornography a victim is chosen to suffer violation in order to offer the porn user revenge and escape in the gospel humanity chooses an innocent victim to suffer death in jesus's atonement we are paradoxically offered the justice and rest we most desire both pornography and jesus appeal to the deepest longings in our hearts only one offers freedom mm. man mm -hmm. dude like mm. i just think of when i you know when i did like struggle with that and you just look at it from like a you look at it from like a I, somebody told me this one time it's like okay you, like you want to you want to stop doing that just like envisioning yourself like to, like in your room just mm -hmm. like that action and man if you think of it just from like a, a a bird's eye perspective the fact that like you are you are like harming you're making yourself feel powerful mm -hmm. because you mentioned your book you know you may have not you may have felt powerless yeah. uh in other ways and you're literally not not physically maybe but emotionally harming yourself mm. and and using another person to feel some sort of satisfactory gain man yes. and you look at how that relates to the story of of jesus man and, and the mm -hmm. sacrifice that was made that we don't even deserve and i, I go back to that verse man it's like mm. come to me all who are weary in heaven letting and i will give you rest yeah yeah i love that man it's mm -hmm. it's like you don't need to temporarily feel that way because Jesus offers a long lasting, a forever satisfaction mm -hmm. within that emptiness with your heart, yes. man. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Like when we're, I mean, I think that's the, how essential it is for us to understand our story yeah. because I mean, let's say, you know, two, there's a lot of different types of family systems that you can come from, but two of them that I talk about in the book are a rigid family and a right. disengaged family. Right. So a rigid family, uh, it's kind of where rules become weapons. It might be, you know, you were spanked and someone was pretty cruel with you, or it could just be like a very rigid setting where you have to look a particular way. You have to sound a particular way to be able to make your family life work. And maybe you get a belt, but you could also get a glare from your mom or your dad if you acted out. Um, and a lot of my clients that come from these rigid family homes, they describe the sense of powerlessness yeah. and humiliation. Sure. So the powerlessness of like my mom or my dad ruled the family with an iron fist. My desires weren't cultivated or known. I was always seen as the selfish one or I couldn't even express desire in my particular family. And, uh, you know, a lot of parents aren't just like mean or rigid. They also create <clears throat> context for a lot of humiliation uh, for children. And I used to think that that was hyperbole. And yet after being a therapist for so many years and even looking at my own uh, humiliation that I have done at times to my kids, it, it's just one of those realities that we have to deal with. Like who has made you feel small and powerless yeah. in your life? And so I think the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is where does all of that humiliation and powerlessness go? Yeah. So that's part one. Right. Part two is a disengaged family system. And you can have both types of family systems. So disengaged is kind of like when care is overlooked. So when you came off uh, the school bus, when you were in middle school, did you have a mother or a father that knew that something in your face had shifted when you were at school? And did they attune to you? And did they ask how you were doing? Uh, when there were difficulties, like you know, the, the male, when boys are about 13 years of age, they have uh, something like a shot glass of testosterone in their system. By the, by the time that they reach the age of 15, that goes to a pint glass by equivalent parts per million. So you are experiencing like massive changes yeah. in your body that are going to lead inevitably to sexual desires that you never had before. Sure. Well, the amount of people, including myself and my Southern Baptist high school that thought that they were becoming evil because they had sexual attraction. <laughs> I mean, it, we're laughing, but it's, it's hard heartbreaking yeah. that families and school systems yeah. and faith-based communities are 
disengaging and neglecting and abdicating the central role of sex education mm -hmm. for our for our kids yeah. and so when you're growing up in a disengaged emotional family you weren't given the sex education that you had you feel completely unprepared for life and you don't really trust that relationship is a place to be deeply known and mm -hmm. desired even in the midst of screwing up or not understanding it so if we take anger and then we take or we take powerlessness and we also take the sense of disengagement and a desire in us to find intimacy that's where i think porn and a lot of unwanted sexual behaviors are so appealing is because they they appeal to the matthew verse that you read like we we are heavy laden people mm -hmm. uh, and we have not known rest in our family um, and so when jesus says you know in matthew 5 blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted i have never met a client who says uh I need comfort for the stories of harm that I have been part of and that I have done to others. Um, but I think that's the powerful thing is uh, if we're not attuned to these places of powerlessness and disengagement, sexual sin is going to be deeply appealing to yeah. us because porn is not about sex and fantasy and lust. It's the issue of power. It's the ability to take another human being and use them for my own sexual you know, gratification. Yeah. But it's also the sense of, yes, lust, desire. Um, a lot of my clients will talk about the porn that they go to. One of the things that they are drawn to is just the eyes of the man or the woman in the film and the sense of like being looked at. Um, that's a really powerful connection. So if, you, if you're thinking about it from attachment theory, which is basically how do relationships form, uh, beginning with our mothers, our caregivers, but it's, that's what we need from a good friend from our parents is yeah. the sense of they they are staring into us and if we don't get that then we are going to be searching and scanning the yeah. world for people looking for us and that's something that i think dr kurt thompson says mm -hmm. really well is that we grow up for people looking for us and this never stops uh, yeah. and so i think that's what we need to be able to hold together is on one hand i am angry and i am processing all of this all of these places that power and humiliation have been used, but I'm also lonely. Uh, yeah. I'm wounded, I'm desperate. And I think we need to have integrity with both storylines yeah. to be able to grow. Sure. And and there's this shame cycle that you talk about, Yeah. Um, which I was, I was curious in, cause I was talking that a little bit with uh, the lady last week that we had Eden. Mm. And, you know, I think there's a difference between shame and conviction. I think mm -hmm. the enemy uses shame. Um, and the Lord uses conviction to bring him closer to you. Yeah. But you talk about this shame conviction and how yeah. when you fail or when you, you know, do the thing that you don't want to do, it, it crushes you. And then mm -hmm. it ends up becoming the main reason why you do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about that shame cycle and, and, yeah. and why do we stay? Why do we stay in yeah. this cycle? Yeah. So it, a couple ways of thinking about this. A lot of times we think that we feel shame in response to our behaviors. Mm -hmm. But the point that I'm trying to make in my book is, no, we are actually, we have these negative beliefs about who we are. Yeah. So when I went and my nickname was Donut in middle school, mm -hmm. and when um, people said things about who I was and my face and my intellect um all of those things shape this inner psychology of kind of like i am ashamed of who i am and so later in life i am going to pursue things that promise a relief <laughs> from the shame yeah. but then reinforce it and i think that's a really critical place for people to learn is that you don't just feel shame in response to the behaviors that you've participated in, you have to go and excavate the stories that led you to solidify this shame-based mentality sure. within you. And then look at how does my life provide me with irrefutable evidence that I am broken mm. <laughs> beyond repair. Yeah. Um, another part of that is the way that like the neuroscientists talk about shame 
is they will say that you need to be thinking about shame as like a manual transmission car. And so you've got three pedals, the gas, the brake, and the clutch. And so, you know, we have a sympathetic nervous system that is essentially the gas pedal in our car. So it's what drives us to our mother initially to climb up in our crib, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to crawl around the world, uh, our, our world and our family home, uh, eventually work up the courage to ask someone out. Mm-hmm. Um, basically everything that you want in life, you need your gas pedal or your sympathetic nervous system for. Uh, but then we have a braking system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is essentially, it's what allows us to rest, to calm down, to digest our food. And there's this really great relationship between you need a gas pedal, but you also need a brake. The dilemma is that children don't have a fully developed parasympathetic nervous system. So we rely on that from our parents or caregivers that they need to, you know, hit the brake and say like, you know, you actually need to go to bed. You need to brush your teeth um, because good parents know that, you know, desires have to be disciplined if they are going to develop. But what happens with shame is uh, it's when a parent, a caregiver, a system slams on that brake in a manual transmission car, if you don't engage the clutch, what happens to the car is that it doesn't simply die, it kind of jolts forward. And what the neuroscientists say is that's what's happening in shame is that it's when the brake pedal, the no, is engaged without the clutch of kindness and attunement, that's the psychological experience that we have of shame. And so for a lot of us, Um, We have grown up in family systems and faith-based systems that did not have a clutch in the way that they engaged our sexual story or sexual difficulties. And so even if they never slammed on their brake, we knew that we could watch other people have the brake slammed on them. And so from our mirror neurons, we know I can't ever share that story. I can't ever talk about that because there will be no clutch for me. And so that's a big part of our spiritual formation and psychological health is when I look at my sin, when I look at my difficulties, when I look at the problems of my life, will I, with Jesus, begin to engage my life with a clutch? Um, Because I have a lot of gas pedal, but I also have the ability to slam the brakes on myself and the whole system psychologically shuts down in those places. Wow, that's amazing, man. I've never, like, neuro, like, I'm, I'm so into neuroscience stuff right mm-hmm. now. There's this guy who's just taking off on podcast, Andrew Huberman. Oh, yeah. Yep. He's this neuroscientist Definitely. guy. I'm so into him right now. But I've never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. I think the big question that a lot of people would be wondering, like, how do we get out of it? Mm-hmm. How do we get out of this cycle that you talked about? How do we yep. get away from this sin? Are there, are there practical steps mm-hmm. that we take to, to get out of this this cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, steps that are contextual to what you're dealing with. Um, And so, you know, this particular book is on unwanted sexual behaviors like porn, infidelity. Um, The next book that I'm writing is really on the, the holistic topic of desire. Um, So that could be low desire, that could be a desire with our career, um, where our life is headed. And so I think we have to be able to contextualize that healing approach to the specifics of what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So a couple things from the research that I did, we found this was only true for men, but men with a lack of purpose in their lives were seven times more likely to escalate their use of pornography. So these men looked back at their life and saw a lot of failure. They didn't have a sense of where they wanted their life to go. They felt stuck. And when that was a man's experience, his porn use, you know, went up by a factor of seven. So that sense of uh, a lot of times people are fighting against porn, but are not fighting to discover meaning and purpose in their life. So that's a really big pivot is instead of just fighting against something, uh, another thing I talk about in the book is this difference between freedom from versus freedom for. And so a freedom from sexual brokenness will only get you so far, but to really think about what is my freedom for? Like, what do I actually want out of my life? And to be able to have a vision of life and purpose that are that compelling to be able to really go after is 
is crucial. So I, I work with a lot of people who are coming out of various faith-based and psychological paradigms that are like very heavy on addiction language, which mm -hmm. I am increasingly moving away from. And, you know, they get sober, um, but they are dead inside. There is nothing life-giving in them. And yet, you know, the equivalent that I talk about is, you know, it's like they bring me into their backyard and they say, Jay, like, look, um, there's no weeds anywhere. I'm sober, I'm good. And then I'm like, but there's nothing back here but a dust bowl. Like there's nothing alive, there's nothing growing here. And so I think the best approach is to be able to think like, what would it mean for your life to come fully alive? And if you create a garden in your backyard, there are gonna be more weeds, but we pick them not just to get rid of weeds, but to be able to preserve the health and the goodness of the garden. Yeah. So. I think particularly for people that uh, don't know who they are, have never had a place of development in their life, uh, we've got to be able to help people think about not just freedom from mm -hmm. sexual difficulty, because sexual difficulties are going to appeal to people at low levels of differentiation and low levels of development because it takes away the agony of choice and development. So that's a whole category of yeah. people is like, you know, the, the male brain is not developed until about the age of 26 or so females maybe a year or two earlier um so just that sense of like a lot of a lot of times our our most significant sexual struggles happen without a fully developed brain so we need to develop who we are i mean no different than sports right like no one yeah comes in being like, wow, I'm the best third baseman that has ever, it, you have to get errors in order yeah, to learn sure. and you have to just do, you need to get your 10,000 hours in. And so same thing with sexual difficulties and life development is that you have to go through a crucible of some kind in order to develop. Yeah. So uh, that's a whole demographic of people. Um, another demographic of people are those who have past sexual abuse. And so sexual abuse isn't just kind of some of those classic definitions that you're looking at, but it's it could also include being introduced to pornography, maybe something that you experienced of just boys being boys or uh, something that you felt like was awkward or kind of a little bit strange. If our first sexual you know template was set with something that was more abusive or wasn't full of our consent or our desire at that stage, that might shape a lot of the trajectory of our life in terms of uh, just this topic of reenactment where I actually go back to similar themes and dynamics of my past. So for that demographic of people, they really need to be able to heal the wounds that are driving it. Uh, Father Richard Rohr says the pain that we do not transform, we transmit. Always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to. And so for a lot of us, that's the Matthew 5, 4 of we need to be able to find comfort for our stories of harm. Um, and then another demographic of people would just be like, you know, they are trying to manage their image all the time. And that's likely the role that they played in their family is I need to be the golden child. I need to be the one that, you know, makes my life look manicured. And that's, I think, my family history. That's how I, the role I was set up for. And back to my grandmother, there are just some stories you just do not tell. And that was my, I needed to be able to tell other people some of the difficulties that I was facing. So, yeah. you know, outside of a mirror or a selfie, uh, I can't see my face. And so I need you, I need my therapist, I need my wife, I need my friends to tell me kind of what they're seeing. And that can't happen if I don't, you know, submit <laughs> myself and my face to them yeah. to be able to bear witness to what I've been in and some of the struggles. So for a lot of people, it's also breaking that sense of um, secrecy. Yeah. That is, so it's always contextual sure. to what, where you come from sure. and then where it is that you're, you're hoping to go in life. Sure. And I love those practical steps and, you know, spiritually speaking, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel, man, is that like, there is so much freedom in Jesus. And you mentioned this in your book, and this is, you know, worldwide. The 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 gospel, the fact that the that Jesus Christ died for our sins, mm -hmm. it was it was paid for. Like mm -hmm. your purity 
and and your your sexual sin that was dealt with at the cross and that's mm -hmm. the beautiful thing about the gospel man is that like we don't deserve anything but it was all dealt for on the cross and so because of that we can live in freedom um and so there's and you know you talk about this in your book there's 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 practical steps to take mm -hmm. but there's also spiritual uh guidance uh for that too yes and i love that man i love that you talk about that um the, the there's something about like the tour guide or like the there's a guide oh, oh no. there's vaguely, a guide there's a, there's like three a sage, people a guide yeah. do you remember any of that like an ally maybe it was that yeah. one of them yeah this is your this dating long ago. so i think it's like an yeah like an ally which are like your friends like right. these are people that are going to know your story right not your accountability partner yep. I, mean, I not i don't think account accountability about what you're doing wrong is never going to help I you, love that you accountability that. <laughs> about like this is where i want to grow and these are some yeah. of the desires and because i'm aiming for this thing that is good true and beautiful there are a lot of squatters yeah. <laughs> that are going to show up to <laughs> hijack this so keep me accountable to to something beautiful sure. growing all for it but i think allies are just people that know your story know where you're coming from uh a guide might be a therapist uh right, maybe yep. a pastoral counselor that has some training in this uh likely they've you know they're a couple years ahead of you in terms of yeah. understanding story and trauma and have some working understanding of sex and sexual yeah. difficulties outside of just like a lust-based sure. uh, framework and then um what was those are your guides and then your sages are like yeah. who are the authors who are there right. who are your hubermans that you're following yeah. <laughs> with regard to like they are shaping the cultural sure. conversation on this and we need all three um very sure. practically that we've got to have good friends we've got to have good mentors sure. and guides and then we also need to be able to follow some people that are leading us sure. <clears throat> and that might be people that agree with us it also might be people that don't fully uh, you know don't fully agree with sure. but it's it's about having our thoughts and our minds formed and so sure well the fire's yeah. about finished up here i think we got yeah, the time limit but one thing i want to say before <clears throat> we take off here is do you all time this no for it but to work out isn't like this that? great like we should start <laughs> telling guests that like we're just going to talk until the fire's out <laughs> yeah that could um, be a good podcast yeah. too, until the, the fire's out um for anyone listening and breaking the fourth wall here, man, um, man, I just, I think of like the person, um, listening, that's just really just, they've been in this for a while mm -hmm. or even the person that, uh, comes from maybe a Christian background and, you know, knows that like they shouldn't be maybe doing things with their girlfriend or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Man, if, if anybody's listening to that right now, and I think Jay would agree with this, you have been forgiven. Like mm -hmm. there is forgiveness and there is rest in the Lord. And we just read it in Matthew, come to me and I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. um, and so take take that away tonight. Um, Jay, we're, we're super, super thankful for you, man. And um, you know, besides all of that, you're inspiring a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Your book has drastically changed my life. And I know you're, uh, you're inspiring a lot of a lot of dudes out there, a lot of people out there, man. Mm -hmm. So keep doing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're thankful that you came on, man. Yeah. Thank you for of your course. courage to engage yeah, man. your life and of course. the material. Of so, course. Uh, last question and, for you would be, yeah, go for oh, it. I was just going to say, this is my first outdoor podcast, much less Isn't bonfire cool? podcast. Isn't it cool, so man? We it's, were like, it's great. I am such a up. temperature person that yeah. like in rooms where sometimes if you're doing an indoor podcast they have to turn off either the yeah. usually it's the air conditioning yeah and it, it just gets so hot and i can't think or process no when it's just I am we're just bonding warm. man so it to be able to have a little yeah. bit of warmth but far more the chill <laughs> yeah of the february air sure. so good yeah we were i was like <laughs> at a point i was like should we just like get an office and do this inside and just kind of recreate it i'm like no we're gonna like this is going to be legit. Like it's we're great. just going to be outside yes. and we're just going to bond. Yes. Um, but man, my last question to you and I ask everybody this is if there was a piece of advice you could give little Jay, what would you give him growing mm -hmm. up? Little, little Jay Stringer, what would you say to that dude? Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm having so many flat, I think my, uh, 
what my body's doing with your question is I keep seeing my son's face yeah. uh, who just wants everything. Um, and part of how I've had to like parent him is just continually saying like, your desires are so good, keep them coming. Um, but also they can't like, he, he knows how to foreclose his desires because they can be disruptive. Um, and so for him, I think part of what I keep finding myself saying to him is like, keep desiring. Um, and I think that's what I am so grateful to the God of the universe for is like that there's a sense of there is a desire that has been placed in my heart that I did not create. Um, and so I think there is, I wish I had trusted those desires a lot earlier. I think I, I had this understanding that like my desires were not good or they were driven primarily by ego or driven primarily by something selfish or sinful. Uh, Whereas I think the deeper question is like, there is something that's been placed in each of our hearts that we have not yet <laughs> excavated and understood. So I think I'd want to say that to my younger self of like, there are desires of beauty within sure. you and to really understand that. And I just, I wish my life had been more kind. Um, mm. I think of like Romans two, four of, do you not know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to change? Um, not willpower, not hatred, but really kindness and kindness has not been. Yeah. A place that I have been. Sure terribly well-formed hey, with. So here, I think that sense of being far more kind with myself throughout sure. my life. Sure. I, I wish I had man. learned earlier. Sure. I'm in it with you, man. I'm in it with you. Where can people find you? Um, Instagram. Instagram. J-A-Y underscore Stringer underscore. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's another author out there by the name of Jay Stringer, who is oh. a British crime no nope. author and nope. he came out with his book years before me so he took all the websites still he took everything, and i don't even and think it's like a hundred thousand to get the so, domain or something yes. <laughs> yeah. so um their website is jay-stringer.com mm. uh, and a lot of resources for churches and self-assessments that you can take to get some compass headings online courses so sure. kind of all the stuff that's out there today sure. um if you know the book i think is a really good place to start yep. Um, but also you want to be able to keep going deeper into your story. Um, so website, sure. Instagram. Cool, man. Yep. Cool. Well, he didn't tell me to do this, but if you guys want to pick up a copy, Unwanted by Jay Stringer, it's changed my life and I hope it can uh, add a lot of value for you. Jay, we love you, man. We yeah. appreciate you coming on, dude. Thank you for having me. That's all we got. Me. Jay Stringer, yeah, honored to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, dude.